Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still, still three years and counting, the only podcast that deals with films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I'm Matt Monagle. I do the same goddamn intro every time. If you don't know it by now, if this is your first episode, you're in for a treat. If you have listened to a bunch of our episodes, then you know what's about to happen next. I'm going to introduce Matt Donato. How you doing, bud? I should have had our guest talk, and that would have been just completely mind-blowing. I, I missed that. That would have been a good bit. Do we do bits? Are we are we bit-oriented as a podcast? I don't feel like we're super bit-oriented. I just say I'm tired a lot, which isn't really a bit. It's just my constant state. Baba Booey? Is that what that's, are we doing? Are we okay? That, I'm pretty that. sure we can't do that. <laughs> I'm pretty legally, sure that's a bit somewhere legally, else. I I declare fair comment and criticism. We're fine. Um we are doing one of my favorite things to do on this podcast this week, which is obviously talk about a movie, but it's to bring back a guest. I love bringing back guests because A, we know that they're good at this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have invited them back. But B, it really gives us an opportunity to, to evolve, I think, the conversation and step away from the who you are, how did you get into the industry kind of conversations that we normally have and get into stuff that's a little bit more topical and relevant and dare I say, ripped from the headlines. So Donato, will you do us a, a favor and introduce this week's awesome return guest? Yeah, of course. Uh, this is also one that I wanted to bring back because I felt very bad on the episode we recorded last time because I thought I had planned out my day all right. And then I had a screening and we had to, we didn't rush our episode, but we could have talked for so much longer. So redemption was needed. I felt very bad about that. So we are bringing back Mr. Michael Verratti, filmmaker, producer, screenwriter, co-host of the Midnight Mass podcast. Michael, welcome back. I'm just excited to be here. Uh, I didn't think we rushed last time's conversation at all. I remember it being very rich and uh, layered and basically a cake of of delights. We, uh, unfortunately, and I don't want to give a spoiler here. Unfortunately, you, you weren't able to find another Penn and Teller slasher to bring us this week, which I would have loved. I would have loved if we could have done that again. I understand the guy can only crowdfund so many movies in so many years, right? So, like, it just wasn't on the table. It's true. That being said, any movie that Penn and Teller have made together usually ends poorly for them by the credits. So it may not be billed as a slasher, but their mortality per film is is not great. I will say That's that. That's very fair. That's very fair. Well, Michael, last time you were on the, the podcast, we talked a lot about your interest in horror, where that came from. We talked a lot about... Um, you know, your rising career as a writer and how that came to be. It was a really great conversation. If you haven't listened to it, I really recommend you go back and listen to the director's cut episode with Michael. But I want to hone in on kind of that working writer piece that, that with the conversation we had previously, because as we're recording this, and who knows what will happen over the next couple of weeks, but as we're recording this, a lot of uncertainty for working writers, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, you know, protests happening on the coasts and then some in Chicago, God bless them, <laughs> make your voice heard. I love it. Um, but I'm kind of curious as somebody who makes a living writing feature films as somebody who I know is out there right now in support, how are you feeling? What's going through your head? What are you thinking about as we're having conversations about what the next couple of years are going to look like? Uh, well, it's a really uncertain time, but I think that anybody who's really aware of the details of why the Writers Guild has decided to strike understands that despite this uncertainty, it's necessary because the things that the writers are asking for are 
just fair. You know, it, it's it's a, mm-hmm. a fairness. It's a a industry that makes billions of dollars off of the creative ideas of people who don't even reap 0.001% of that once it leaves, you know, their hands. And uh, basically, you know, writers are just asking for transparency. They're at, asking to be treated fairly. They're asking for their work to be given proper consideration. Uh, but it, it, you know, a strike. I, I was out front of Netflix today uh, as part of the picket line, and I heard someone say, you know, we don't want to do this. We, mm-hmm. Every writer would prefer to be at home writing, but right now this is the work. Because if this work is not done for both WGA and non-WGA members, it will affect everybody. I mean, the the change has already been astronomical. Any of the TV movies that I have written on my resume, for example, would have been a much better paycheck in the 90s or early thousands than they are now because the streamers don't have to report how many people see them. You know, they don't have to pay what they used to. They don't feel like paying what they used to. And uh, it's, it's, but they, they're making the same amount of money, if not more than ever before. And it's, it's just kind of a bummer. You know, you spend so much time developing and creating and toiling and taking notes from people who don't want to give you a fair wage for the work that you've done. There is not a writer out on that picket line, WGA or otherwise, who has not experienced exactly the reason that has caused the strike. So, yeah. And I mean, like to date today, I mean, it is important to say, like, we're talking on May the 18th and this episode will come out. You know, you're listening to this in the future. So we don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. But today specifically, just to go over, you know, some of the things you were saying, Michael, like, we know today some of the shows that are leaving Disney and Hulu and things that are disappearing, like Willow, shows created to be on streaming that are just going to vanish now. Uh, and then yeah. also talking about like AI and all that stuff and things that writers are fighting against for very obvious reasons. Uh, today it is announced that app like PseudoWrite is coming out for long form AI helping stories. And it's like, yeah, no, like something has to change. Like this is just like an insane landscape. Well, and I think that what really needs to be made more clear is that the writers might be the first ones on the line right now, but this is a problem that's going to affect everybody. And if you think it's going to be limited to just the entertainment industry, it's not. You know, I think that uh, AI could create problems for a lot of jobs, both for screenwriters and for critics of films. Uh, You know, we know as of a few days ago, or maybe it was even yesterday, because all of the uh, the intensity of current events are kind of blurring together, that the Screen Actors Guild is getting ready to mobilize to strike as well for the same issues. They are they are not being paid fair residuals. They are in danger of being replaced by AI. So anybody who thought it was just writers who were complaining, no. I mean, the actors are taking notice. The directors are taking notice. Mm-hmm. The crews are taking notice. And the misconception that Hollywood is only populated by people who are like in the 1% or like the highest wealth bracket is, is sort of a disservice to all of the hardworking blue collar folks who actually populate the industry. 
The 1% is that percent for a reason. Even in Hollywood, that's very, very few people. Very few people are Joe Esterhouse who can sell a script at $6 million. Most people have to sell multiple scripts a year just to make sure they can pay the rent. Most actors have to work a separate job just so they can pay the rent. And this is all we're saying is if we're making the thing that's making Fox or Disney or Paramount billions of dollars, no one's expecting to retire and be rich. We just want to be able to live you know yeah well this is where i want to talk donato you brought up the ai thing and this is something that i think is really interesting because in the interest of full disclosure there are ai content tools that i use in my professional life in order to create content um a lot of times what we're talking about with that is there are like writing tools that we'll use to turn non-writers into writers. And by that, I don't mean they're writing long form content. I don't mean that they're writing, but there are day-to-day communications, emails, social posts, things of that nature that we want to be able to have them work on. And so I sort of, I always say that I have this sort of Jekyll and Hyde personality when it comes to AI content, because there is a utility there that I do see in my professional life for the type of content that nobody is clamoring, like no person is clamoring to make out a career out of writing types of emails and those sorts of things that are happening. But we don't use it for creative content. I'm very much opposed to it crossing over at all into the creative world that I occupy when I'm off the clock in my day job and I'm becoming a writer. And I think that when you spend time like working with the tools, and this is something that I think a lot of people have commented on this, not my thought, you know, it's, Anybody who even work, I have friends that work in like AI and content creation, and they will tell you like, this is, this is a starting point. Like nothing is ever good enough on the first pass. Even the most diligent, even the most like true believer AI folks, they're like, this is not something that you can just put in a prompt and have a thing and you're good to go. Like it requires human intervention. And I think the scary thing in this conversation, especially with regards to creative writing, is the notion that I've seen a few times that some folks just won't care. For some, for like a lot of folks, 80%, 70% of something that feels and looks like it could be human content, it isn't about whether or not that's good enough for an audience. It's whether or not that's good enough to put people out of a job and just use this tool. Like 70% of a real script, fine. You know, I've seen Netflix films that are 70% of a real script, right? Like it's good enough for a lot of folks that they just, they don't feel the need to want it to be any better than that. And that's sort of the scary thing is because the gatekeepers here are producers that are like, close to fuck enough, I'm done. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Nobody who really sits and thinks about it, regardless of how good artificial intelligence becomes, believes that a artificial device is going to be able to replace human ingenuity. Right. That being said, there are folks especially in money positions who already display sort of a lack of interest or engagement with the creative process who don't care or don't see that what they're creating is missing that. And I think that, you know, I guess that people are going to take what they're given. And if you cut out the ingenuity and only make, the same kind of sandwich forever and ever, then the people who go to buy that sandwich are just going to eventually say, I like this sandwich, never knowing that they could also have had steak. You know, that's just how it goes. 
Well, and that's also too like model you're talking like our business day life and all that stuff. Cause like I, I work for a translations company and machine translations are a big thing yep. in our industry, but it's yep. knowing what they're used for and it's knowing why you use them. Like, you know, if my client is giving me product driven data that is so mechanical and that is just like you look on a website and it's just product names, product descriptions, there's nothing there that hasn't been trained, like stuff like that. Like that's the only time we use human translation or want to really. And when we do, it's still checked over by a human and that kind of nature. But like that is for such a specific, like you're saying, it's a business case, um, you know, for emails and stuff, we'll use that. But like so many times we'll have to go to our clients and they'll be like, oh, like, why aren't we just like, why can't we just use Google Translate? Why are we going to pay you to do it? And like the simple answer is like, cool, go ahead and use Google Translate for a long form document and put that whole thing in there and see what comes out because yep. it's it's lacking everything you just said there. Like, Michael, it's lacking all the it, knowing the continuity, knowing what the actual entire story being told is like it doesn't have the ability to read everything like that. It's just reading words and spitting them back out. And it's like, yeah, no. And I think one of like some of my favorite things seeing from the strike so far and like one of the best signs is like. AI doesn't have my childhood trauma. Like, yeah, like, no, like a a writer is going to bring so much more to something than AI can. And a writer, I forget who did it, but someone tweeted out, but like they asked chat GPT or whatever one of the AIs is. They're like, what, what would you be better suited for being a CEO or being a creative writer? And like the AI answered like, oh yeah, no, I'd be much better suited to be a CEO because it's just running through data and analytics. And like, you know, basically I could replace a CEO so much quicker than I could replace a writer. And like seeing the AI say that is just chef's kiss. Well, think about the kind of films in genre that engage you. I mean, I know some of the movies that you like, particularly I'll I'll bring up dude, bro, party massacre three. AI would never be able to write that because it's too convoluted. It's too insane, but it's knowingly insane. It's knowingly convoluted. You cannot teach that to a machine. Mm-hmm. You know, machines are direct. Nuance does not exist in, a, in, in, in that digital way. I mean, hell, even when humans are using digital things, they miss nuance. Hence Twitter constantly. Donato is Donato's film taste is incapable of passing the Turing test is what you're saying. Like there's just <laughs> no chance in the world that Donato could ever be confused for a robot. You know, and I like, I like the, cause again, I know AI is only one of the, um, one of the issues that writers are, are currently negotiating for and working on. Um, so I want to make sure we don't just focus in on that, but I think, you know, one of the best ways to think about all of these tools out here is, any kind of like, even even a good algorithm is basically going to be able to say, um, oh, you asked a question or gave me a prompt, an answer to that would sound something like this. It's not the answer to that is this or the version of that. It's basically saying, oh, if I were to answer that, it would sound kind of like this. So it is already multiple levels removed from even like any inspiration or creativity there. It is, it is, a, it is an echo. It is a shadow on a cave wall of what an idea looks like, right? And so I think that that's, I think that that the scary thing for me, even more than the writer thing, and I think this gets to the solidarity piece that you talked about, Michael, I'm less worried about, you know, obviously I'm worried about everything. Recreating good writing is hard. Recreating good voice acting, recreating like some of the other things that technology is being used for, that's scarier to me. The notion that there are, you know, there's a news article just the other day that that an influencer created an AI likeness that allows you to have like unique one-on-one conversations as if they were you. It's where these pieces of technology kind of come together. And 
the things that we're not even arguing over now, right? Like the fact that you could create the likeness of Fred Astaire's singing voice and do right. an entire movie with permission from the estate to have Fred Astaire be the star of your animated movie or whatever. Like those are the, they're not here yet, but they're going to be here in 15, 20 years. And those are the kind of things we need to be striking for now. Well, how terrible if you are an actor that you have to now think ahead that you need to put a clause in your last will and testament that you don't want people to resurrect you for a movie in the future. Uh, Or the fact that, you know, because folks like Fred Astaire or Marlon Brando or Rita Hayworth never had to think about it. So now it's up to the estates to decide if that's okay. And that's weird. You know, these are things that we really kind of need to step back and think about not everything should be available for entertainment just because we can, you know, just because we can is not always good enough an excuse. I mean, literally, isn't that what Jurassic Park's about? Just because you could doesn't mean you should. Some things it's okay. If some things end, it's okay. If there there are, if stories don't get repeated, if actors pass away and we're left with what they gave us before, if writers don't get to write anymore, like it's some things are just over and that's okay. And I mean, like that just today, once again, using current events, uh, the Tesla ad featuring featuring I'm doing air quotes here, Ryan Reynolds. Right. I mean, like, that's a massive thing that you can just AI a celebrity into your commercial without them agreeing to anything like it is just boilerplate for arguments against AI. And like, I again, I hope that does drive decisions because, uh, again, we don't we don't know the future just yet, but decisions to have more strikes, you know, like or more people joining the strike, mm-hmm. let's say. Well, I think it also comes down to the idea that just because you've made something easy doesn't necessarily mean it's the right choice or it's the good choice or the quality choice. I mean, full transparency, and this is a matter of public record, so anybody can look it up. I am not a member of the WGA. I'm a non-member, but I have projects that um, would have caused me to join that I put on pause because of all of this. You know, uh, I also understand all of the things that they're fighting for because I have been put in the exact same situations where people who don't understand what it takes to write something and the amount of time and the amount of effort and thought to deliver something good will flippantly ask for an 11th hour draft that they don't want to pay me for. That affects me as much as it affects them. So when people say, well, you're not a member, so you could easily, as a non-member, write a movie for a non-signatory company, and that's fine. The WGA would be okay with that. It's literally in the rules of the strike. I could go write a movie. And I'm, you know, uh, but I don't want to right now for the reason that if we don't affect the change over here and we're not in solidarity here, then nothing changes. Even for folks who are not immediately affected. It's a trickle down. I'm curious, uh, Michael, because, you know, obviously any anybody who is tangentially associated with the industry that, that makes less than seven figures a year, I would hope gets it right and right. understands and is on the same page. And it's been heartwarming to see the turnout from talent, um, from actors, from filmmakers that are out there on the line with WGA and non-WGA members. Right. Where I'm curious about how this is received is for people that don't get it, right? Like for people that aren't in the industry that may see as part of the nightly news or maybe scrolling on social media, you know, like video outside of the the Paramount building in New York City or outside of Netflix. And I'm, I'm curious if you're talking to friends and family members that are outside of the industry, 
do you feel like they understand kind of the stakes here that they're supportive that they get kind of what's going on or or to go all the way back to your comments about the one percent do you think that that people think it's hollywood ergo it's rich and liberal and performative and whatever else so like these are these are rich people problems and not something i need to pay attention to yeah, I think it, it's a case by case basis. Uh, the people who have made up their mind are always going to think what they want to think. But the people who take the time to understand the situation realize that we're all out here fighting tooth and nail every day to make our thing, to have our thing be seen. You know, there's no guarantee, even if you make a movie, that it's going to go anywhere or that people are going to see it. Or that it's going to get more than 10 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's like, that's the that's the thing is there are thousands upon thousands of movies made every year. And if every single person who worked on every single one of those movies was making seven figures, then uh, it would be a whole fucking different world economy, wouldn't it? But the truth is, um, most people who have the wherewithal to understand that uh, are in solidarity. And I think that um, sometimes you just have to put it in different contexts. You know, the second, uh, one of the biggest uh, exports of, of American industry is the automobile. Well, people who work at automotive plants are not all making kajillions of dollars. The CEOs are. People who run studios are making kajillions of dollars, not the people on the assembly line, air quotes. And that's what this is really about. It's not, as I said earlier, nobody is asking, you know, to retire to Palm Springs. We would like to, but, you know, no one no one is striking for that reason. They're striking for fair wage, for fair treatment, and just for human consideration, ultimately. Yeah, and I feel like we've reached a point in time too. I don't know. The last few years have been rough for a lot of reasons, but if there is sort of a silver lining and something that does excite me, about the state of America in 2023, it is the resurgence of unions and is the, the resurgence of um, understanding collective power and organizations that have unionized that haven't and unions that are standing up and flexing their power and getting media coverage in ways that they may not have. So I suppose it, it does feel, I don't know, I, I, I'm trying to compare it, you know, go back a decade and a half, right? Because everybody's always going back and saying, oh, 2007 versus 2023 and talking about like, what were the differences and how does it feel? And I sort of feel maybe this is just me being a little bit older, but I feel like this feels a lot more of the moment um, and, and of its time and, and right in 2023 than it did in 2007, where it was just, a, I think there, I remember there being a lot more like, oh my God, I can't believe that this union is striking. Whereas right now everybody's like, hell yeah, like everybody strike, every industry strike. Yeah. So I feel like there, there is more of a, a, of a sense that this is part of a trend rather than a bit of an aberration, which again, I was younger. I don't entirely remember, but that felt sort of like it was shocking because it was so different than what we'd seen from the industry before. Well, I'll tell you, I went and gave a college graduation speech a couple weeks ago at Kent State University in Ohio, and the uh, the strike was briefly mentioned in the speech. It just organically, I didn't write it mm-hmm. into the speech. It just kind of came up, and you know, the students were very engaged by that. And so afterwards, I was thinking about it, and of course, they're engaged by it because the world that they live in is the world where there is a huge economic divide. And they're seeing that every industry is creating this space where you can work and work and work and work, and you may never even be able to get ahead because you're creating, you're building, you're working for 
a world that isn't constructed to sustain you anymore. And something's got to give before there's nothing left to give. And I think that that's it. So this isn't really a movie problem. It's not a writer problem. It's going to be an everybody problem Mm -hmm. because the divide gets bigger and bigger every day. And at some point, you get to be on one side of the canyon and you can't even see the other side. And that's it. Like we, we need to get to the point where we build the bridge before it's too far away. You know, that's it. Yeah. I keep having the same conversation over and over again because, you know, we're looking at apartments, we're looking at moving and things of that nature because we are being greatly priced out of where we are. And I keep having the same hesitation of like thinking back when I was like young, when I was a little kid and, you know, looking at my parents and, kind of kind of being vaguely aware of what they made and you know our financial situation and kind of being like huh like okay there's a set number i can reach in a salary and there's a set number i can reach and i can live pretty comfortably and like you know that's that's kind of all i want and like the fact that i have you know this is not me tooting any horns or anything like that but like the fact that i have surpassed that number and the past that the fact that like i am in a place where i feel like i should be living quite comfortably and yet we are still looking at apartments and being like cool this thing that is barely functional enough for two people and a dog uh is still out of our price range like like it's just it's it's insane because and it goes back to exactly what you're saying like we're putting in so much more as workers as everything like just as humans uh, these days yeah. and we're getting so much less back it's just it, it, it's a lot so like yeah to be on those front lines and stuff and to try to like you know just change things for the future is is huge because as you said before like what what the writers are striking for right now affects so many other industries and you, you know you mentioned critics like you mentioned review writers and stuff yeah we are right. we're me and monogle are a major part of that too because as you said if ai starts getting used in your industry and it, it's in stopped it's going to go right into journalism. It's going to go right into any other kind of writing industry. And like, that's horrifying yeah. because the common people monocle, like you said, yeah, they're not going to see a difference uh, in news writing, especially. And like, if it gets the green light in one place, it's just going to trickle right down and get greenlit everywhere. So yeah, this is, this is weirdly, not weirdly. I shouldn't say that. Sorry. This is very important right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that solidarity is very important, uh, and that's that's really what anybody who's on the picket line uh, or out there talking about solidarity who is not a member of the WGA is is really trying to enforce. This may not, as of today, affect you directly, but it's going to. And yeah, you may be able to live your life comfortably without this disrupting your you know, daily goings on for the next couple weeks, for the next couple years. But if you don't stand up for something, anything can take you out. So you have to be there uh, and just understand what the fight's about because it does affect everyone. I will say one thing about the strike now versus the strike in the 2000s. The one thing I do like is the transparency of social media, because I feel like that is something that is very different. That's the one key difference of it is now under a much bigger spotlight. Uh, And, you know, whether it's a PR stunt or not, you see a lot of celebrities, as Monica mentioned, like coming out and supporting. But whether that's good natured or whether that is something just to put them in the good graces of people, it's still bringing awareness. It's still bringing these problems to light in a way that they couldn't have been brought prior. Uh, I feel like the curtain is now lifted and we are seeing what the demands are and how kind of maybe not great the reception is on the studio side. So if there is anything that is different, I think it is that social media aspect. That's the one 
the one area where I will say social media is helping something in even the slightest way. Right. Yeah. And if there is a, an upside to our current moment in time, it's we're about to get so much good, so much good, like evil AI, evil robot screenplays. Once the writer strike is over, like we are going to go through a wave of, of the future dystopian nightmare landscape, James Cameron style scripts. That's just, ah, I'm, I'm, excited and ready to see what happens when writers go back to their keyboard and say, yeah, I think I'm going to write about AI a bit. I mean, we saw <laughs> the, uh, the trailer for, um, what is it? The new, uh, Gareth Edwards, uh, oh, the, creator. Robot movie. the creator. Thank you. So we're already kind of there. Uh, Michael, last question for you. And then we're going to talk about the movie that you brought for us today. Sure. Um, if you are not in a Los Angeles, if you are not in a New York and you want to do something, right? Like you think this is important. You want to participate. You want to find a way to participate. What's the, what, what would you, what would you recommend either, you know, places that you, organizations that might, you know, provide resources or uh, mutual assistance and mutual aid for writers who aren't working, uh, things like that. What would, what's on the, the radar for you? Well, it's really interesting because I have seen um, photos and video of WGA picket lines in places where there are very few members. But, you know, uh, if you're in Montana, Montana still has a film commission, so you can go march outside of the film office if you want to. That being said, uh, probably the best thing you can do because there are massive picket lines outside of the studios in Los Angeles, New York, and places like Chicago that are constantly in need of resources. I know that the WGA uh, posts links frequently about where you can donate money or send a pizza or water. So just maybe check out their social media feeds. Uh, they are always looking for resources. When we were out uh, front of Netflix today, there was a little wagon with like, you know, bags of Doritos and water. Like, do you need anything? Uh, and that isn't free. You know, someone donated that. And if you feel like you can spare a couple bucks for a cube of water, I'm sure uh, the writers of your favorite shows would be very appreciative. That's awesome. All right. Well, from the uh, uncertain future of the world as we know it to the very certain future of a small town in New England and the <laughs> Santa shark that is killing everyone, killing everyone there. When we come back, we're going to talk about Santa Jaws. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Just want to say thank you, as always, to our patrons who help support this podcast as well as the website and the amazing, amazing film criticism we run there week in and week out. As always, we turn over the middle section of our podcast episodes for a bumper from one of our patron members. And today we have something from James Shapiro, good long-standing friend of the podcast, James. He asks, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Uh, a lot, probably. Klondike bars are delicious. The chocolate is on the outside and the ice cream is on the inside. That's a pretty fantastic business model. I will also add here that I'm deeply upset by the current generation of Klondike bar commercials. If you listen to them, I think they're rerunning them again now because they offer Klondike cones, Klondike sandwiches, and Klondike bars. They cut off the bar in the jingle, the what would you do for a Klondike, and it stops there. It's becoming, it's 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 the the Who Framed Roger Rabbit version of shaving a haircut without the two bits. Every time that commercial comes on, I just want to scream the word bar in my television set. So what would I do for a Klondike bar? I would probably 
scream bar at the television a bunch in order to get a Klondike bar. That's my answer for you. Uh, thank you, as always, to James. Thank you, as always, to the rest of our Patreon supporters. We really hope you're loving this episode. Um, you know, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, and we weren't sure if the writer strike would still be going, but guess what? It is. So we hope that uh, we hope that that comes to a soon as soon a, res- a resolution as possible. Um, I don't think any of the things we talked about in the podcast are any less true. So hopefully, you found it informational and educational. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So, if you remember the last time Michael was on our show, uh, we did director's cut, which was sort of a campy, fun, slut horror slasher type thing. And you know what? I think every time Michael comes on the show, he's going to bring us something that's got a little bit of goofiness to it. And I really respect <laughs> the fuck out of that. So, this week on Certified Forgotten, we are going to be talking about Santa Jaws in the spirit of the conversation we just had. Santa Jaws is written by Jake Kiernan, directed by Misty Talley. It is a 2018 film, and it's actually been the subject. There's a series that Donato and I do at Certified Forgotten called Film School from Hell, which is a series where Donato makes, is a strong word, but makes me watch something. And I write a post about it for the folks that follow us on Patreon. A lot of times it's either very goofy or very gory, stuff that takes me outside of my comfort zone on either side. But I wrote a synopsis, and so I'm just going to read directly for myself. I'm going to quote the smartest person I know, which is me, and say <laughs> that the story for Santa Jaws was the night before Christmas, the night before the night before Christmas, and high school comic book artist Cody is having a bad go. Grounded for sharing an unflattering caricature of his principal on social media and embarrassed in front of his neighborhood crush, Cody chooses to pour his energy into Santa Jaws, the cult comic he's developing with his friend. But when a Christmas miracle gone wrong brings Santa Jaws to life, Cody must discover the true meaning of Christmas before the shark's taste for the holiday leads to the death of everyone in his small coastal community. Good job. Michael, Santa Jaws. What brought this on the show? Well, I mean, far be it for me to talk about a Christmas movie. Like, who would have ever (laughs) drawn that comparison? Um, No, this came about actually because I, well, one, love this movie, and we're going to dig into that. Um, But over on Midnight Mass, I had done a Patreon episode about Santa Jaws with my friend Sean Doherty, who I had originally watched this movie with. Sean is a... uh, stage actor who is in the Jagged Little Pill musical, still on tour right now. You have a few few more chances to see him. Um, and we lived together briefly, and we watched this one holiday, and this was like it. It rocked our worlds. We loved this movie. And I had posted uh, that we did this little Patreon in honor of, of our love of the film. Donato saw it, and he was like, wait, you love that movie? You need to talk to us about it. And I was like, anytime you guys want me to come on and talk Santa Jaws, I'm down. So it's sort of like a backdoor way of me bringing this movie to you. Uh, but I'm glad. I'm always happy to talk about the reason for the season, which is our our finned friend, Santa Jaws. I feel like our guests have figured out that if you just tweet about a movie that meets our criteria in a way that Donato will see it, he will just DM you on the spot and be like, you're our next podcast guest. Come on the show. What was funny, I mean, that wasn't my aim, but anytime I can expand this, this, anytime I can expand the discussion of this movie Mm. uh, and introduce it to new people, I'm always thrilled to do so. Because, as I said, upon watching this, 
several Christmases ago, I was like, oh, yeah, this is part of the annual rotation now. Yeah, and it wasn't no, no, just you're, like, yeah, I was going to say, you are vibrating on screen for me right now. You need to talk. So. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's exactly how it went down. But uh, I, it's not just because you tweeted about a random movie that fit our criteria. Like, I also love Santa Jaws. And I think the only other person I had ever seen write about it or talk about it was Chris Koppel. He wrote about it for Blade Disgusting. I watched it to make sure, it, you know, I had to know where to rank it in my hundred plus ranking of all the Christmas horror movies for slash film. Um, and so the fact that like somebody else was talking about Santa Jaws, I was just like, this is it, like, it's destiny, right? Like this is, this is how fate works. This is how this works. I mean, my column, or I'll say short lived, I think it went for like a year or something uh, drinking with the dread. When I did write for dread central, uh, I wrote drinking games for horror movies and I used Santa Jaws there as well. And like, that is something that we still have to do live because we're going to do that one night. We're going to hammer watch a Santa Jaws. Everything about this movie fits everything I want in my sci-fi, but better vibe of genre. Yeah. So- you know, what I really like about this movie is there is a specific kind of horror movie from a specific era of horror that was the regional horror film that we don't get as much in the era of streaming um, that really is made in earnest, but also with the kind of tacit knowledge that it is what it is. It's a silly movie. It's a simple movie. You don't set out to make a movie like Santa Jaws and assume that you're going to do like Fast and the Furious numbers. You're making this because you want to make it. And we see sort of a lot of these. We get like a lot of the Amityville movies, et cetera, et cetera, these things that come out and hit the market. Uh, And then every so often a Santa Jaws emerges from that space that makes all of those movies worth it because I'm like, this is why these movies exist because someone earnestly made a film because they wanted to. And it's fucking good. I really Mm -hmm. like this movie. So let me ask then, um, you know, I think, listen, anybody who listens to the show is going to probably try anything that we talk about. So you have already converted a few people that are going to go out and rent it this week. But this falls into a category of film. If there, if we ever talk about a certain type of film as oversaturated in the marketplace, if we ever say superhero movies, there's too many of them. Shark movies, there are far too fucking many of them. And it's gotten to the point where it is very difficult. I think for a lot of folks, very difficult to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. Like there's a lot of shark movies that come out every year. Some of them aren't bad. Some of them are really good. And some of them are really good. What's the uh, what's the one that everybody loves with uh, Mrs. Ryan Reynolds? I can't remember. Her oh, name. I mean, well, there's The Shallows. There's 47 Thank Meters Down. The like there are movies like that. But I would actually, I'm, I might disagree and say that we are overloaded with shark movies. I feel like, I feel like there are enough shark movies coming out right now. But the problem is most of them are pretty bad because most of them do not understand what makes a good shark movie. And like, I mean, I just watching that new Josh Lucas one, uh, the black demon or whatever, like just, I have seen so many shitty CGI sharks with terrible kills and they just keep the shark off screen until like the last minute. So I, I don't know if there are too many. It's just that we don't get ones that are as good as 47 meters down the shallows, uh, even, you know, 47 meters, the sequel, which is a slasher movie with sharks. If you actually watch it, it's right. hilarious, but yeah, sorry. That is, that is my, no, 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 but that- that's the point is I think that like if you go to a red box right now, odds are you'll be able to find four shark movies and they won't be any good. And I think that people's uh, defenses are up, right? I think people are sort of like, 
if if it is not a if it is not a top tier, right? If it's not a triple A film and it's a shark movie, everybody's like, this is asylum kind of stuff, and like I don't need to treat it seriously. It's not going to be good. So that's my my setup for you, Michael, in answering this is what makes Santa Jaws different from a million Sharknados, Shark Apocalypses, whatever, whatever these movies are that people are sort of used to seeing on Redbox or on Tubi or other places. Well, is Santa Jaws even actually a shark movie? Is my first question. That's I, fair. I think that one of the great joys of this movie is it's sort of uh, a multi-layered. Uh, it's a blooming onion of a of a horror film because there you have to you can peel back the layers of deliciousness, but no, it's it is a coming of age movie about a kid who gets a magic pen who makes a comic book that brings a shark to life. So there's things going on before we even really get the shark. I mean, we get the shark in the cold open, of course, but like the mechanism for the actual shark arriving into his reality. Uh, doesn't happen until we have this other element introduced, this magic pen, Christmas time, coming of age story. And the shark sort of just happens into the story. I think that this is a Christmas movie first, Mm -hmm. a coming of age movie second, and a really cool shark movie third. So that's what separates it for me. Of course, yes, if you're going to the red box or you're seeing that title, you're you may make the assumption that it is just one of many, but I think the thing is about it is, is it knows what it is from the beginning. There's this knowing wink that happens from the second the film starts, but also people love Christmas movies. So they're always going to give it a little extra, extra leeway or, you know, the benefit of the doubt and in yeah. that benefit of the doubt, I think is when it wins people over. My job right now is basically just to be like, why should people care about this? And then let the two of you, you know, sing the praises from the rooftop. So Donato, you know, what makes this different from all the other shark movies out there? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything that Michael just said, because uh, I should hate this movie. Like I am the biggest uh, complainer about like, if you give me a CGI shark in a shark movie, you're doing it wrong. Like that. It's just, that is the primary reason I'm watching your film. So if you either hide it from me or just do bad CGI the whole time because you think it's just about putting some blood in the water, then I'm probably going to hate your shark movie. But because it has all those other elements, because Santa Jaws 100% knows what the hell it is, it takes the Christmas spirit, it puts it where it doesn't belong, it literally puts Christmas lights on the shark. It's got the hat on the fin. Like everything about this movie is leaning into the fact of saying like, this is a silly shark Christmas horror movie that should not work, but we're going to try to make it work anyway because it's a fun concept. And without that, without that differentiation, without the idea that this is some kind of different shark movie, without the relationships going on and this kid trying to find himself and the family aspect of it all. And again, like the Christmas satire of it all, of trying to figure out the holidays with your dysfunctional family. All of that stuff is there. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head too when you mentioned the fact that, you know, the shark wears the Santa hat. Later on, it gets the, the crunchy Christmas te- ornament teeth uh, and, you know, the, the candy cane horn. And these are absurd things, but what they really are is camp. And I hear a lot, we talk about this on Midnight Mass a lot, about how there's this notion that you can't knowingly create camp. But I think that if you're very clever 
and are mindful of the world you're building, you can. But the thing that people forget, and we see this a lot where something like a trauma movie or some of these low budget movies that immediately hit with just something gratuitous or subversive, but that's what the movie is. They forget that camp is born out of earnestness. And that's why the camp elements of Santa Jaws really work for me, because at the heart, there's still this earnest story about a boy who's still trying to find himself. He likes this girl. He's at odds with his family. He wants his family to recognize that art is important to him. The parents don't quite get it. And then in the midst of all of that, then the absurd thing happens while that portion of the story continues to stay true to itself. They never jump the shark, pun intended, with the family's like commitment and earnestness to one another. And so when we get each added ridiculous element to the shark, it makes it more entertaining because the world itself isn't ridiculous. The shark is. And that's, to me, where the camp in this works, if that makes sense. Yeah, because the comparison points I think of, you know, all these other shark movies that are coming out, you know, Monogle's mentioning all the asylum takes because Santa Jaws is on the level of an asylum sci-fi production. Like it is, I think it was a sci-fi movie. So you're not getting the best effects. You're not getting the best of much. But still the comparison points of those mega shark or, you know, three-headed shark attack or uh, shark bait or all of these other movies where... It is just about getting characters onto the water to be killed by a shark. Like they don't think about the other aspects. It's okay. How do the vacationers in Mexico get on a jet ski and get stranded? How do they, you know, how do the people over here in this like aquatic location, how do they get on a boat and get stranded over here? It's always the same formula. People go get stranded. They hate each other. They start fighting the shark attacks. Maybe they come together. Maybe they don't, but I never give a shit about the people. I never give a shit about who's being chomped up or anything. It's just the repetitive nature of this is a shark attack movie. So I know what we have to do. Santa Jaws does everything outside of that formula to make it more than what we've seen a billion times over. And it does, it's not going to stun you with its effects. Like it's not going to do anything absolutely amazing, but at the same time, all of that, like the camp element ha- uh, helps a ton because, you know, I try not to use camp cause I'm not ever sure of using it correctly. Cause like, yeah, can you create it? Can you not? But the fact that you are saying it now, I can openly say yes, Santa draws is camp. Yeah, I think one of the elements that that I like about this film, and I think it goes back to what you were saying, Michael, about the order, right? That it is a uh, Christmas movie first, coming of age movie second, shark movie third. Um, It feels like the filmmaker set out, their inspiration was not any other shark movies. Their inspiration was Joe Dante, right? They set out to make gremlins. They set out to make small soldiers. It is a group of friends who encounter some entirely magical big bad kind of thing that shouldn't exist but does and then they have to sort of like save their community to pretty much the uh the lack of anything from the parents around them the adults around them are sort of clueless and it's the kids that are sort of banding together and make this happen and i think that makes it ripe as a christmas movie it's perfectly in line with sort of the emotional arc and uh storytelling that we want from a christmas film uh but it also it also means that Every decision that goes into this, the story beats, the sequencing, how the characters interact with each other, it's not doing that in service of a shark film. It's doing that in service of like that coming of age, you know, Amblin Entertainment style, um, you know, PG-13 kind of thing, which makes it it's it's pulling from the right places to tell something that's really going to work. Well, 
People ask me frequently because I do write and create both horror projects and holiday films. And and there's always sort of this question of how can you do both? Well, because they're not entirely that dissimilar. Horror movies operate by and large on a sequence of rules and tropes. And so do Christmas films. And when audience members get angry at tropes, they're not really angry at tropes. They're angry at tropes done poorly. Mm-hmm. This movie knows exactly what its tropes are, and it does them extremely well. The things we like about this movie are things that we recognize as things that we... Are, it, let me take that back. The things that we like about this movie are things that we recognize because they're familiar in a slightly different way. You mentioned that sort of Amblin connection uh, and in the coming of age journey of the kids. We've seen this before, but in this context, it feels fresh. So we aren't necessarily thinking about the fact that some of the tropes are familiar because it doesn't matter at that point. I mean, I've seen this enough times that sometimes when watching it, I'll comment to people like, you know, the comic book guy, if this movie had had more money, that would have been, Kevin Smith or Patton Oswalt, and they wouldn't have changed the character at all. Right. And that's it. It's those things. It's like, it's all there. It's just for what it is. It's it's packaged in the way it is because it knows what it is, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's the argument I always make about like, there's no such thing as a bad jump scare, just bad jump scare creators. Like, Like, you know, the whole idea that like, you can use tropes. You can use them to your advantage. Like a trope is not inherently a bad thing. And a movie right. like Santa Jaws is going to take those tropes and use them to its advantage because it actually has a little more to say than that. You know, like there is nothing to get mad at, like at, at the trope itself. Like you have to pull back and be like, no, this is actually a foundational part, part of like filmmaking. Like, again, just using jump scares as the example, like a horror movie needs jump scares, it, it, you know, but like not everyone is James Wan. Not everyone is like Wes Craven. Like, so you have to find the good ones and you have to hold on to those. So that's like, you know, supporting, the you know, supporting Santa Jaws is basically saying like, this is how you do this correctly versus like, this is how you don't, which is an insane example to use Santa Jaws, but still. Right. Donato is probably tired of me using my jazz example. So in the spirit <laughs> of the film that we're talking about today, I'll, I'll mix it up slightly. I always refer, usually refer to jazz, but I'm going to say movies like this genre is like Christmas music. You don't want to hear a different song, right? When you sit down to hear something like, um, you know, jeez, uh, I don't even know, Jingle Bells, whatever, Jingle Bell Rock, whatever. You know, you expect to hear the song. The song is the song and the song isn't going to change. But over the years, hundreds thousands of performers have found ways to put new takes on it to find new musicality in it to do it upbeat to do it downbeat to do it bittersweet to do it joyful right like all of these standards that we've heard years and years and years of christmas music everybody you you want to hear the song i don't have my christmas spotify playlists that are basically like the most unknown stuff there's the stuff in there i want to hear whether it's sufjan stevens or whether it's frank sinatra I want to hear a version of that song, but it's what people bring to those uh, to those templates that makes it special. Genre is jazz. Genre is Christmas music. It really works here. Yeah, it's all about knowing the rules. And I think if you are good at knowing the rules, you can be good at stretching and breaking the rules. And that's that's really key to genre material. I mean, 
everyone knows the rules of slasher films because they have been outlined to us in pop culture over and over again. But then you look at something like April Fool's Day, it follows the rules until it doesn't, it breaks the rules. And that's, that's it. That's someone playing with formula, still giving you the familiarity that you know, uh, while also giving you something slightly different. So you feel good about it. It's, you know, Brian Setzer's version of Jingle Bells versus Barbara Streisand's Jingle Bells. And that's that's it. That's what's happening here. We get the beats of a Christmas movie. We get the beats of a horror movie. I mean, he had to learn the meaning of Christmas. And that's why after everything, he's the one who has to save the day because he's he's the one who learned the lesson. And he wakes up on Christmas morning, just like Scrooge does, and gets to see all the people who he mm-hmm. felt wronged him or he had wronged but they've come together they've put aside their differences because christmas because he learned his lesson and you know lather rinse repeat let's hope there's not a shark next year yeah i'm curious donata you mentioned this earlier um and i wrote about this a little bit in the film school from hell piece that i wrote you mentioned i don't care when i watch a lot of these other films if the characters live or die uh they're just you know they're a body count to be run up um by the end credits but Donato, since you mentioned that I want to start with you, what makes us give a shit in Santa Jaws about when characters die? Because we do. These deaths, these on-screen deaths are done very differently with a very different emotion in mind than what we're used to seeing in a lot of these films. I think it's the family aspect is definitely playing into it. I mean, like the grandfather alone, you just set him up as like the cookie grandpa who likes his eggnog and does all these things. But, you know, you make him a likable character off the bat who deeply cares for everyone who's around him. Um, So like, you know, he takes the kid, they go fishing. And when he dies, like that's a deeply traumatic event. Like, yeah, I just watched my grandpa get killed by a a Santa Jaws. Uh, But like there's there's the connection there. There's something to lose there. Um, and going to like the parents, they have this moment. And again, I'm not saying the dialogue is really well written, but the parents have a moment of the mother trying to like go onto the lake and just basically be like, I'm going to fight the shark by myself. And the dad being like, if we die, we cannot protect our kids. And there's just more thought in the dialogue between the characters than again, might be in a regular asylum type movie. Cause you know, speaking to the other characters in the other movies, so many times it's just about, you know, we're all friends going on vacation, but are we really that good friends? They're, like you said, they're body count. They're just there to die. They're there to be whatever. But here you actually have a family unit that like works in unison. They're working through their problems. The jock gets his moment to be like, listen, I'm just a dumb jock and I know that. All right. Like I might not have anything better. So like they try to break stereotypes in their own very base value way. But even just trying to break them is more than a lot of other movies would try to do. Yeah. Well, it goes back to our conversation before we were talking about Santa Jaws of instilling humanity into a script and how that does make the difference. Uh, You know, I am not going to besmirch my colleagues who have written uh, asylum films because I myself have written asylum films and I'm proud of the films that I wrote. But during the era of that time, uh, I know that their impetus is to uh, always make sure that the story is moving forward. So you really didn't get to have moments of just sheer characterization. Like if they're not talking about the shark and the tornado, then it gets cut because that's what it's about. But when you think about what makes the difference, we've all seen slasher movies with that cold open where someone dies and it's just a body to kickstart the movie. It happens time and again. But then you get something like Casey Becker 
that's not entirely different from what we have been served in the past, but we spend time with her. We hear her talk about things that are not what's happening. We hear moments of her humanity, and that makes the difference. And you can't just prescribe that by sticking solely to plot. I love that you brought up the jock moment, uh, Matt, because I love that moment in the movie. Because when you are watching it, there's sort of a beat like, why is he talking about this right now? But that's what people do. When people are nervous or stressed, they kind of go off on their own little tangents because they try and calm themselves. So what's a jock going to talk about? He's going to talk about that baseball game that he either won or biffed. And I think that Arthur Merrickwin's like delivery of all that is really great. And it makes when he gets killed even more impactful later because we know more about him than just like he's the dumb jock older brother. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really special and not easy to do especially in a movie like this when we know that the model of so many of these shark movies that are generated for tv are okay here's the shark it's in a tornado or it's coming out of a lava or it sent an email or whatever the you know the, the thing is and so most of those movies are constructed solely around dealing with that but here we're given the opportunity to see the people both with the shark and without the shark and it really does in in uh, ingratiate themselves to us, I guess. Yeah. There's a there's also something to be said for where movies sit with broader trends, right? Like, you know, I think that um, I wrote a piece a long time ago, long long time ago, about uh, John Cusack in was it Room fourteen oh three, whichever the Stephen King adaptation was fourteen oh eight fourteen oh eight fourteen oh something. <laughs> and why that felt like such a breath of fresh air at a time where the industry, the horror industry was being dominated by, by excess, by French extremity had landed with a thud. A lot of American filmmakers took the wrong lessons from those movies. Um, and that was what we were seeing in theaters. And 1408 or 1403 was a throwback, which felt like it was counter-programming, which was so wonderful to see in a multiplex at that time. And I think there's something about a movie in... 2023, which doesn't have that same level of nihilism, but definitely has, I think, a lot of our protagonists. There's a lot of not winning in horror right now. Um, Part of that is the trends we have for mental illness and the fact that a lot of filmmakers and writers are tackling this as as something that that has real ramifications and stakes and wants you to be aware of the interplay between that. Some of that is just, I think we have an appetite for bleakness. It's the end of the world. You know, this is where we're going. But there aren't a lot of films, a lot of horror films that I see these days where the good guys win. It feels like that's out of that's out of favor, that's out of style. And so something that I did love about Santa Jaws, I mean, spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't been listening to the rest of the conversation, is that this is a horror movie where the good guys win, and also the good guys win with a body count of zero. They're okay. Like everybody at the end of this movie is fucking okay. And I that like I deeply deeply admire that. Yes, it's a cute way of you know going back Christmas morning, waking up. You get to un- have your cake and eat it too when it comes to killing people. But there's a positivity there. There is a, a desire and a rooting for these characters to survive, which I feel like that's the one. It doesn't happen very often, but when I see a horror film that clearly doesn't want any of its characters to die, that's something that I just want to stand up and champion because, like you said, Michael, even the cold open character exists to be killed. Nobody here deserves to die in any yeah. kind of moral or simplistic or story writing way. And because of that, in the end of the movie, they don't. No, it's it's great. I think that it's also very clever because it's a horror movie where 
basically everyone dies and no one dies. And that mm-hmm. is a tricky thing to do without res- without resorting to it was all a dream, um, which I guess that mechanism is sort of in play, but not really, because that's not the point of what happens at the end. There's still the growth. There's still the thing. It's the Scrooge element. We are led to believe everything happened, but because of the power of Christmas, he got kind of, he got his little MacGuffin, basically. Yeah. Because not like, MacGuffin. Uh, what's the uh, Mulligan? It's a Mulligan. mulligan. Thank See, you. I'm not a sporty person, but I figured it out. I got us there. Got better than me. Oh, because we also have Krampus too. You know, like it, it, there's the chance for this to become the Krampus ending, the fake out ending, and and it doesn't. And again, I think that's, you know, it's harder to stick the landing of happiness. You know, it's harder to stick the landing of positivity because it's so easy to go the road of bleak. It's so easy to go kind of where we're expecting and to say, yeah, it's a horror movie. Like this is, this is what we're in for. We're in for getting hit over the head with just the nastiest stuff possible. And, you know, Krampus gives you that little carrot on the stick or carrot in a snow globe, whatever you want to call it. Uh, (laughs) And then it just wallops you and it's like, nah, they're still fucked. And, you know, the admiration for Santa Jaws, again, this insane hybrid of so many different kinds of uh, movies to then end and be like, nope, we are straight up a Christmas movie. This is it. like this is just the power of right. Christmas as told through a comic that brought up Santa Jaws to life. I, it's it just ends exactly how it should in a way that makes sense in a movie that barely makes sense. Well, maybe that's another reason I really love its place in holiday horror, because of what you just said. Krampus ends on a down note. Black Christmas ends on a down note. Christmas Evil ends on a down note. Silent Night, Deadly Night, well, I guess they stop Billy, but good luck everybody else. It ends on a down note. Uh, And here's a holiday movie that gives us the horror that horror fans would want, but also gives us Christmas. Yep. And we and we get to have Christmas morning, and no one's got no one's tra- traumatized. Uh, well, maybe maybe Cody is. I don't know. He's got his own own journey there. But Grandpa made cinnamon rolls. We're all fine. <laughs> yeah, those cinnamon rolls did look good. Well, this is the part of the podcast then, and you've been through this before, so you know what to expect. Where we talk a little bit about the the legacy or the place of this film. You know, I think that. I don't want to put my thumb on the scale too much. This is a Christmas horror film, which means that there are already people out there that that are going to champion every single year, right? The two of you are definitely people that when anybody asks, oh, it's Christmas, are there horror recommendations? I know this is going to be the first, one of the first things that both of you put out. But, you know, there are some, there are some strikes against it, right? It is, it is a lower budget film. It is a shark film for the reasons we talked about. It's easy to get lost um, among films that don't deserve comparisons to this. So I think how do how does this movie going to earn the audience that it deserves and earn its place in the Christmas canon that we think it deserves? And Michael, I'll have you go first. Well, I think that maybe the thing to remember is that horror movies and, and their various subgenres can be niche and are allowed to be niche. And I think that certain Christmas movies are as well. And Sometimes when talking about legacy, I think people are always fixated on the idea of sort of a reclamation or a reappraisal where we get um, Halloween three gets its its due years later. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with something occupying a niche space and occupying uh, a, a little corner of the world that belongs only to it. Um 
and holiday movies are are able to do that in ways that maybe even other movies aren't because of their kind of perennial appeal. Uh, ever since I saw this, I've been loud about this movie and uh, maybe, maybe more so than some because it catches attention online whenever I talk about it. And in doing so, I've connected with some of the people who were involved in the movie. I mentioned Arthur Merriquin, who plays the, the jock brother. He and I have uh, since followed each other on social media. He seems very lovely. Uh, but I, I watch that, even though he works and does other films, he's a brilliant photographer. This movie kind of keeps coming back and he seems very excited that it comes back. Uh, it, it's sort of that movie that um, he knows every year, at least one person's going to bring up. And sometimes that's all you need for legacy. You know, one or two people, 10 people mentioning it every Christmas for, you know, the rest of time is awesome. I think, you know, I don't know that it needs to be hundreds. I don't know that it needs to be thousands. It's kind of like the people who know it, appreciate it and love it. And I think, you know, for the speaking as a filmmaker, uh, I'm sure the filmmakers of this film would love it to be hundreds and thousands and maybe one day it will. But just knowing that someone loves your movie somewhere is great. And uh, this movie has gotten to a place where it occupies that space on the tree and people like it. So it's not the star on the top. It is one of the ornaments, but still it's one of those important ornaments. That is the, the jaws just ornament with a Santa hat on it. But yeah, I mean like the hard part is kind of done because it was, you couldn't find it for a little bit. It was on sci-fi streaming network uh, or not even network. It's just on sci-fi streaming site. And then sci-fi just like gutted at their site basically. And ever took everything down. And I think it was like a year and a half, at least, where you just couldn't find it. You couldn't rent it. It didn't exist. So it's on Prime Video now. It's on Prime Video. It's easily accessible. Uh, I know it gets lost in the sludge of Prime Video. That is so hard to navigate and find new things on. But it is that niche oddity, as you just said, Michael. Like, this is that movie when you've seen every Christmas movie a billion times over. And the holidays come around. And you're with your friends. And you're kind of like, what weird shit can we put on? I mean, I've got plenty of recommendations, but I always gravitate to Santa Jaws because you're not going to have seen something like this movie. It is completely separate. It's completely of its own identity. It is the one Christmas horror movie and like horror is still in quotation marks there. Like it's it's a heavy Christmas movie with a genre influence, um, but it's it's just that one little unicorn of a film that how you know, how how did this come to be? How did this come to exist? So. Yeah, I, I don't know if it will ever be revered by billions and millions of people, but you know, for the people who love it, I think they're going to champion it hard. And as you said, Monocle, like me and Michael are going to be leading the charge every year. And you know, I'll host a, a drinking game for it next year somewhere. We'll rent a theater out and turn a bunch of people onto it. I'm ready. My only hope for this film is that it it continues to be appreciated for what it is and doesn't end up getting kind of backdooring into some sort of weird mst3k experience because i i love mystery science 3000 i grew up on it but i feel weirder about it now in my late 30s than i did when i was 20 it feels sometimes it can feel a little mean or that the audience believes the point is to make fun of the film you know i know that the original intent wasn't there so i'd hate for this to become a drinking game is a great idea but i'd hate for this to become something that is you know routinely like washed and 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 mocked or made fun of in, in a way because people take the wrong kind of lessons from it so that's my only hope is that in the spirit of Christmas, that people are coming to this with empathy and compassion and not sort of 
seeing like, oh, Santa Jaws, like let's let's have ourselves a, a, a some laughs at the film's expense because I don't I don't think it deserves that. I'm always wary when I find something that seems like it could fit that sort of like drunk movie night vibe that the wrong audiences are going to take the wrong reasons out of it. Yeah, and I think that's that's a very interesting thing to dissect from a cult film standpoint or a horror movie fan standpoint because um for a whole generation mst3k did introduce people to movies that they maybe otherwise wouldn't see uh we've talked about this on midnight mass quite a bit uh not mst3k specifically but you know peaches grew up worshiping movie macabre and elvira and we had things like the the original version of last drive in and monster vision with Joe Bob Briggs or USA mm-hmm. up all night with Ron Shear and Gilbert Gottfried. And we were used to hosted content, but that was hosted content that even if there were jokes that wasn't during the movie and then MST three K kind of came for the generation after us. And so for a while I kind of was like, I don't know that I get this, but then I see them playing movies like girl in gold boots directed by Ted V Michaels, who I, absolutely love. And I think that Ted is one of these folks who had a really interesting foothold in the grindhouse drive-in era, sort of a contemporary of Herschel Gordon Lewis, but doesn't get the do that a Herschel Gordon Lewis does. And I would meet people that were like, oh my God, girl in gold boots. And I was like, okay, just do me the favor. Now that you know the movie, watch it without MST3K. And then people start discovering these movies in a different way. So while I'm with you, I don't want to see this movie mocked or made fun of because I do earnestly enjoy it. And I would be bummed to see people make fun of it. There's also a part of me that's like, well, people discover movies in all sorts of ways. And if if that's the way, I mean, (laughs) I guess we'll see. Well, don't do that. Do the thing. Do the other thing. Do the things right. that Michael and Donato were talking about, about appreciating this film earnestly on its holiday merits. Um, but do watch it. Check it out. It's on Amazon. Um, and I I think it feels feel like something every year that'll settle into like a nice bit of holiday uh, relevance, uh, especially over the next couple of years, I think. So get on the get on the ground floor right now. Tell them Michael sent you. And watch yes. Santa Jaws. You'll be glad you did. Michael, it was so great to have you back on the show. Normally, I would say, hey, uh, so... Feel free to share what you're up to, but you're not up to anything because solidarity. So talk a little bit about where people can follow you online and some projects that maybe will come up in in hopefully a few months time. Uh, well, you can find me at Michael Verratti on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I guess I'm on Facebook, but I am very inactive over there. So it would probably not behoove you to follow me there. Uh, and also Midnight Mass. We release new episodes every other week at midnight on wednesdays we have a social media presence on twitter at midnight mass pod uh i am in the process of finishing up post-production on a feature film that i made last summer called there's a zombie outside um starring ben bauer felicia wissa uh danny plotner featuring appearances from laurie cardill from dawn of the dead uh peaches christ and some other ooky spooky people it's a meta horror movie that I'm very excited for people to see. Um, it's definitely bleak. So yes, speaking to the trend that you mentioned. Uh, and yeah, that's about it for now, because I don't know when this is coming out. So I'm not really sure what else I'm allowed to talk about. Uh, and everything else is very, very on pause. So yeah, what a weird time to be alive. Yes. Donato, uh, promote thyself, sir. It's the usual. You can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd and Instagram. 
I'm just going to stick with those for now. The TikToks and everything, whatever. They're out there. Just find my handle on stuff if you really want to search the other ones. But uh, yeah, writing as always. I will promote my work. Uh, just more IGN reviews, more features, things of that nature, more podcast appearances. So hit the socials and I'll keep you all updated on what I do. As for me, you can follow me at Matt Monagle on Twitter and I'm not even going to mention other social media platforms because who knows what will have stuck around. Right now, it's Blue Sky. Um, by the time it comes to two weeks from now, maybe it'll be post again. Maybe Hive will get their shit together. Who possibly knows? <laughs> uh, but I will say, please do, if you like what you heard today, if you would like to support uh, good writing that we have on the site, go visit certifiedforgotten.com. Rate and review the podcast. That means a lot for us. I'm instituting a new rule if I know you personally. And you haven't shared a certified forgotten in an article in a while, but I see you talking shit about bad articles, clickbait articles that are out there. I'm going to just send you an Apple or Venmo request for $1. Uh, you got to share the good stuff. You can't just share the stuff that you don't like that you're making fun of. So get ahead of that. Don't be charged a dollar by me. Uh, go find something you really liked on certifiedforgotten.com and share it. I promise you we've got some really, really, really cool articles up right now and more to come. That is it for this episode of Certified Forgotten. Michael will definitely have you back there. There is a trend. I feel like I know kind of what kind of movie you're going to bring on next time, but also I feel like you might surprise me. So I'm excited for what will happen when we see you again. Well, I love the element of unpredictability. So yes, I can't wait. Donato is already leaning into the microphone, so he's ready to take us out. Ho, 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 you son of a fish. <laughs>